Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. It's always a pleasure to come your way and bring you the kinds of uh, conversation and guests and topics that I think you're going to be interested in, and especially with this one. Uh, this is a very interesting program, and I would never say this to my guests or any of my guests because this is never relevant, but the title of this gentleman's book, his name is Chris De, uh, DeSantis, Why I Find You Irritating. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I can say that about some drivers, um, <laughs> not so much co-workers because I get along with them pretty much, but this is Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Not at work. Oh, come on. No, we don't have conflicts and that kind of stuff at work. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Richard. I really appreciate being here. This is, uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I remember when I first saw the uh, the title uh, of the book in the uh, in the email I received from the PR firm, and I'm going, really? <laughs> I thought, that's a rather intriguing title because uh, it could, it, it actually... It actually could put people off in that regard. Uh, it does remind me of another book I read uh, many, many years ago. God, maybe 35 or so years ago. Uh, it was called uh, Who Moved the Cheese? Oh, yes, yes, I read that book, yeah. right. And I took the book back to my boss after I read it, and I said, look, I don't have a problem with people moving the cheese, okay? Right. Just tell me where you moved it. That's all I. That's all I can say. So in this case, uh, I, I, interesting title. I find why I find you irritating. Yes. Now, first of all, let's talk about the title. How, how did that come about? Because right. I know we run into it not just at work. Well, I, originally, when I when I wrote the book, I had a different title, I, and then I um, submitted to the publisher thirty-seven titles. So I gave him a list. I Excuse said, me, thirty-seven? Yes, I had a list of thirty-seven things that you could choose from, uh, based against you know some. I, I was brainstorming with myself, as it were, and they came back and said this for us stood out the most. And I said, are you sure? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we have a feel. for." So they I, they convinced me that this was the direction to go. And actually, it's it's received well. But to your point, to your point, because the author is a boomer, myself, uh, uh, <laughs> the, they, they, they presuppose I'm talking strictly about the young, when in reality, the book is really an embrace of a generational diversity. And um, I'm talking about the irritation everyone feels with each other across this divide. Well, I, I can tend to agree with you in that regard because I find it fascinating sometimes how, um, you know, we look at, again, another generation uh, and we wonder why they aren't getting it, whatever it is, right. it is that we're, right. you know, conversing. We, we got it. That's the assumption. We've got and it. That is, that, and that's a false assumption because we don't always got it. <laughs> right, right, right. We didn't have it when the other one before us were there. You know, sort of that's the thought was every generation has sort of this um, uh, this this problem in terms of how they are perceived by the generation that precedes them. Yeah. And there's this um, I don't know that you'd necessarily refer to it as a mathematical equation, uh, but it kind of goes along the lines of uh, how how what the perception is. And it's like, first mm -hmm. of all, um, uh, how you see me. 
and then how I see you seeing me, and, and then it, it just it just goes on and on for about six levels. Uh, right. You know, it's not what I think. It's not what you think. It's what I think you think. Exactly. And then I'm not sure if you think what I think you're thinking, right, and so exactly. on and so on. <laughs> so this fun. is the theory of the mind going really bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's one area that just pops into my mind, and that's kind of mm -hmm. how this program goes. Uh, as I've often said to uh, my guests and our listeners. The universe asks a question, I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> and I've had it situations where a question comes, I'm going, no, no, in the back of my head, I'm that that's not relevant to our conversation. No, 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 no. And it won't go away. And I, I'm sorry, Chris, got to stop the interview <clears throat> because this question just won't go away. Well, that's not quite that level. But what came to mind was my, my second general manager. Mm -hmm. It was my first commercial radio job. Mm -hmm. It was at a Christian radio station, and he even talked about it from this standpoint, <clears throat> and he referred to it as the law of diminishing returns, and he lived by it. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it is uh, basically don't put out any more than you expect to get back. And I just, I, I couldn't do that. I mm -hmm. just couldn't do that. And a case in point, we had a client who came in. He purchased uh, a 30-minute block of time for his, his religious program. But he had these five-inch reel-to-reels that he needed to combine together. Each one was 15 minutes. And he needed them put together so that he could uh, use them as broadcast. And um, I said, sure, we can do that not realizing the, the job I was ahead, that was ahead of me. And the main problem was that they were old, so they were dry. So when they mm -hmm. ran through the reel-to-reel -reel guides, they squeaked. So I had to figure out how to get rid of that squeak in order to transfer the audio. I figured it out. I transferred all of his tapes, made them 30-minute programs. He canceled his show after two weeks. Now, should I have gone to that level uh, to help this guy out? Well, of course. Because at the time, he was a client, and it's part of our service. And if he chooses to cancel in two weeks, that's not on us. That's mm -hmm. on him, and I'm not casting aspersions, mind you. I looked at it this way. Okay, he was here for two weeks. We provided him this service where we resurrected, no pun intended, these, right. uh, <laughs> these tapes for him, this audio. So guess what? He leaves the station with a good taste in his mouth, a good feeling about us, which means that he will say good things about us to others. Mm -hmm. Do you run into the, that mentality a lot in the workplace when you're working with companies and especially maybe even with management? Not so much the workers, because I find that the pyramid is upside down in terms of who should be at the top, the wide part. Being mm -hmm. braced on both sides should be at the top. The workers, they're the ones mm -hmm. that make the money for the CEOs who are collecting the million-dollar salaries and bonuses. Um, but do you find that uh, uh, a lot of the philosophies that they run their companies by, and maybe this isn't so much today, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, is, um, it's to, to use the phrase, it's un unsustainable because it spells doom somewhere down the road for that company. Well, I mean, 
you've asked a lot in the question here because I, if I can unpack it a little bit, sure. I can talk a little Please. bit. Please. Uh, first, start with the the perception of others. Uh, that that general manager uh, has a view of life is that he has more. I think is is a bias towards a cynical view of humanity, and and I think you have more of an optimistic view of humanity. And so, as a consequence of that, you have this is the work of Adam Grant. He talked about this notion of givers, matchers, and takers. And I think you are a giver, but you are a strategic giver in the sense that you are not a doormat. You are saying, I'm giving to you with the implicit thought that you will say good things about us and possibly do business with us. Mm -hmm. That is what one should do. So I think you are living the right life with that. Now, as it relates to organizations, it's so interesting. When you said flip the pyramid, you are actually referring to a, a theory of, of, of work called the, uh, the servant leader. And this comes from the 70s. And servant leadership was literally that, that my job as a leader is to support your efforts and remove obstacles in your performance. So, yes, that is also what we should be doing, because then we get uh, the best productivity from people who are committed as opposed to compliant. Mm. So the third thing that you, you talked about, are we skewing? Yes, we are, because what's happening is we're playing the game of more rewards gravitating to the top of the pyramid. And when, as more rewards gravitate to that, it makes it unfair for the people that are working below in this structure. And this goes to something called the Gini coefficient. And the Gini coefficient is if there's perfect equality, it is zero. If there's perfect inequality, then society is at a one. We are moving in the direction of one. And, and it's further away from where we should be, to your point, because I think it's about if everyone's working, then everyone should share in the rewards. But as you amass more rewards, you think or you are more worthy of those rewards, and therefore you stay further and further away from what you should be doing and doing what you want to do instead. Does that make sense? It absolutely. Oh, absolutely does. Absolutely does. Um, I'm going to let the folks know here that uh, we're talking with the author of, and again, it, it's a fascinating title. Just the title alone should get you to pop this book open. Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. We're talking with the author of this book. His name is Chris D. DeSantis. Is that, uh, have I got that correct? you I answer to anything close to that, but you got it correct. Okay, very good. <laughs> and you are listening, folks, to tell me your story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And uh, again, uh, uh, the conversation we're having here has to do with the, the level of irritation that I find with you, <laughs> hence the title of the book, Why I Find You Irritating. It's interesting because uh, as I have came into work today, there were a few instances, not so much traffic-wise, but uh, more, um, uh, we, we live out in the rural part of Santa Barbara, up on, up on the mountain above Santa Barbara, and uh, we, uh, we, we're subject to uh, well water. Well, mm -hmm. there's uh, supposedly plenty of water in the well. However, the pump went out, so uh, we don't have water pressure. And, of course, we you know, like to shower and shave and all that kind of stuff uh, before we go. Fortunately, we have a travel trailer, so we had to go in there and do our thing. Eh, a little inconvenient, but, you know, it worked out fine. And of course, the clock is ticking and it's getting later and later. And I'm thinking, I got to get to work. I got to get to the station to, I don't want to miss the opportunity with this guest. And we normally stop for a little beverage at our local smoothie shop on our way in. And we couldn't do that because it was just weird, you know, running 10 minutes later than usual. In spite of the fact I got my wife to work on time, got here, 
And you and I are going to have an opportunity to snag a good significant portion of our interview, which, folks, you're going to notice somewhere down the line in this interview, things will shift because we'll continue the interview um, uh, post to this one, and I'll put them together, and it'll sound like one interview in and of itself. But when we talk about why I find you irritating, is it is it always individuals or... Sometimes is it is it circumstances? Is it situations within the workplace? Oh, of course, there there are both of these things at play here. Uh, they they intertwine because again, we like to go through our days without friction. That's that's the perfect day. In fact, you've already faced friction when you got out of bed this morning, and so that that irritates you right there. So you're absolutely right. There are contextual circumstances that are irritating. The the printer doesn't work properly. My computer isn't working properly, and then there are the people. And the people are not acting as I wish them to act with the way I had acted in that situation. And so we, we are, there's levels of irritation here. It's just a matter of recognizing what is actually uh, their problem and what is actually your problem. And so in that sense, part of what I'm trying to talk about in this book is we have to separate our perception of another with the reality of another. There's another element, too, and that is, I think, that we want to be right. Oh, of course we do. And, called confirmation bias. Yeah. Right. And nine times out of ten, we're not. I mean, and a lot of folks are unwilling to accept that reality. Yes. Well, we're designed to think we are right. That's part of our genetic makeup in the sense that, uh, in fact, one author calls it the my side bias. And I think that's reasonable, right? I'm, there's You shouldn't go into a situation thinking I am wrong, but rather I think I'm right about this. And this is the question. It's, it's, I think I'm right. It doesn't mean absolute because I think we need others to tell us how close we are to right or how far away from it we are. We need each other. Indeed we do. Indeed we do. This interview would be very interesting <laughs> if you weren't here. <laughs> Might be better. We don't know well, that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, I don't accept self-deprecation uh, as an excuse. Uh, but what I will tell our listeners is that you can find out more about Chris and the work he's doing uh, at his website. And his website is cpdesantis.com. That's C-P-D-E-S-A-N-T-I-S. And we will be linked to your website, Chris. Um, and it's, to me, very, very interesting. Tell me a little bit about uh, Chris and how this subject came about. This seems like a, a somewhat compartmentalized yeah. as far as a subject of a broader subject or a broader uh, realm, if you will, that, that you find yourself in. Yes, you're absolutely right. My background is in uh, organizational behavior. So I'm an independent practitioner in this category. I've been on my own for about 30 years doing this kind of work for about, um, I'd say, 38 years or so. And to your point, uh, what I do is I work inside uh, companies, usually uh, they have professional services, knowledge workers in particular, and I work on issues of performance. So how, how do we work together? To your point, how do we work together? Uh, how do we sell? How do we, how do we build relationships? How do we present? So I have a whole repertoire of topics I address. How do we mentor? All of those things. Now, this is a subset because about 18 years ago, I was running a school for new consultants for a very large uh, consulting company. Uh, and so at that time, I'd have 200 of these young people coming in from around the world that I'd have for three weeks. And I was used to them behaving in a certain capacity. And all of a sudden, I started to notice that they were more assertive 
or more demonstrative than I had experienced with others before them, and especially in my own life, meaning mm -hmm. me and how I would have interacted at that age. So what I did was, and management wasn't happy with them, and they wanted to change them into them, which I said, is that doesn't seem like a plausible solution. So I started doing homework. So what, what you, uh, this, and this goes to your point, Richard, I started learning about this generational sort of sensibility and what is real and what is not. And so over the next 15 years, I just read everything there is on this topic as much as I, get, I could take. And eventually I put something <laughs> together. And that's what my little book is, is the space that I found that wasn't filled. And so I, I tried to, because I think what we do is when we, I'll go on just for a second more, but what we do is we, we talk about these generational distinctions as if they're so clear and they're siloed and they're, and they're not. And part of it's perception and part of it is reality, but we, we mix them together. And it's, I don't think it's necessarily what's reflective of who is in front of us. And sometimes uh, who is in front of us um, can teach us some very profound lessons. Oh. It is said. Well from a metaphysical or spiritual perspective that that which, using your word, irritates me about you is usually something that I'm not too fond of within myself. Yes, yes, that was one of the quotes in the book. And so, and that is true. So we have to say, what is it about this person that, that, that is that, that it's basically projection to some degree? Why am I irritated by some aspect here? By the way, to your point again, is that we learn who we are. We learn a little bit more about who we are. Yeah. We become a little more self-aware, mm. so, which I think is important. And I also think what's really important is external self-awareness. Not only who I think I am, but who do you think I am? Yeah. But I sometimes wonder if that second question might be asked more in, in the process of seeking approval. And it has been said that we need to stop doing that. Now, there's nothing wrong with somebody saying, wow, uh, you know, Chris, this is a great book. You know, you, what a what a, a, a wonderful uh, manuscript that you've put together. This is fantastic. Um, you know, but the other side of it is if you don't know your what your strengths and your weaknesses are, uh, quite honestly, you know, I made the comment earlier about, you know, self-deprecation. I've, I've run across a lot of people. I had one gentleman that I worked with who would come into the studio to record his news. And uh -huh. I would hear him from down the hall. And he would make a mistake. And you would hear him screaming and yelling at himself and saying the, the most awful, dreadful things to himself. Uh, uh, you know, and then he would pick up and he would continue on recording his news. And I'm going, holy mackerel, what the... <laughs> and... But, at the, but then there's the other side of it, the narcissist, okay, and I'm talking about somewhere in the middle here, where I can sit here and say to you, Chris, of all of, uh, that all of the things that I do in this realm of broadcast producing, whether it be a podcast or whatever it is, I'm good at what I do. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with me saying that yeah. because I am. I'm, and, and, and I've been told yeah. this, and it's yeah. not coming from ego. It's coming from personal experience, uh, and of course, then of course, uh, 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 shall we call, I, I like to refer to them as critiques, not criticisms, but critiques from the outside world. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about how important, yes, it's important to know who I am, and by the way, we encourage people to find out more about who they are, not by going to a website, not by traveling to a far off land, 
Like in the 60s, you heard the phrase, Mom and Dad, I'm not going to college. I'm going to travel the world and try to find myself. But by going within, we encourage people during this decade of, tw of the perfect vision, 20, the 2020s, to go within and listen to that still small voice. So talk to us a little bit about how important knowing self is in this context so as not to necessarily have to ask the question or make the statement why I find you irritating because, as we just stated, it's, it's in me. Well, a couple of things. Let me unpack this again. You have very complex questions. <laughs> First, let me start with this notion of approval. I, I have to, I don't disagree with you at root with this, but there is the question of approval of my performance in the role I'm playing on this job. You see, there's reality to that mm -hmm. because your approval, you, you need my approval as the station manager to do the kind of work you do, but you're good at what you do. So my point would, I give you the space to do it mm -hmm. because, and you need that from me saying, okay, we agree with, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I get, I get the platform for that. Now your humanity though, is your own possession and your authenticity is your own. And the authenticity that we seek is not up subject to approval. It's the alignment of our inner values with our outer expression of those values. And so that is our space to your point though, is we are on a path to discovery. And this is really important in senses. You have arrived at where your skills are at their best. You are what I call in my book, lopsided. You are particularly good in certain areas and you impossibly are absent in skill sets in others that are irrelevant to what you do. You might not make the best accountant. You might not. You might mm -hmm. not even care about numbers and you probably don't. But my point would be is your gifts are around what you're doing and you have the opportunity to leverage those. You have lived a lifetime where you have been able to sort of accrue where you are good. The young are on their own journey. And what we tend to do is we tend to focus on what they're wrong with their performance as opposed to what's right. Mm -hmm. Because we have to balance the, this feedback and say, okay, this could be better and it needs to be good enough but here's where your gifts are. Let's see if we can really play the gifts because your greatness is here, is in the gifts, mm -hmm. not in the things you don't like doing, but you need them to do well enough so you don't embarrass me or the firm or the clients that we deal with. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So I'm a fan of embracing this, yet our performance systems are, in terms of evaluation and things like that tend to commoditize us. You know, I look at, at 12 factors. Why am I looking at 12 factors with you? I'd only look at three. Is your voice good? Are you orderly? Are you kind? Maybe five. You know, are you empathetic? Do you draw out from others? That's I'm interested in. I don't care what you wear. I don't care. I don't care anything else. I don't care how you add numbers. I don't care how you do with the computer. You see what I'm saying? I don't mm -hmm. care. I care about the few because that distinguishes you. Yeah. Chris DeSantis, my guest, why I find you irritating the title of the book, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. And this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we're here talking about uh, not just the workplace, certainly uh, th that's a major focus. Um, one of the things that I find interesting, Chris, Chris DeSantis, uh, who is my guest here on the program, and by the way, it's uh, cpdesantis.com, and we will be uh, linked to that website as well uh, on our website and uh, uh, with the podcast broadcast and videocast so that uh, you folks can find out more about the work that he's doing. Maybe get yourself a copy of the book. It would be a good idea. I wanted to ask you in regards to um, the current state of uh, employment in this country specifically, mm -hmm. uh, apparently we are, we're not at, 
Well, I, I don't know if it is full employment yet. I mean, one or two or three percent. I don't know what the number is. But one of the things that struck me when I started hearing about how companies were having trouble finding people to work for them, mm -hmm. that meant that if they were short-staffed, those people who are working for th this company mm -hmm. are going to end up taking on possibly double, triple, even quadruple duties and maybe not making more money. Mm -hmm. And that is going to put a strain on that employee and maybe the, the, the co-workers as well. And it's going to kind of generate not a real positive uh, morale within the company. You know, it's like everybody's walking around like zombies. They're exhausted because they're having to, in order to keep the company going, in order for them to keep their jobs, and not from performance standpoint, just from the standpoint of, we don't have any product to sell, so if that's what they make, uh, that, if that's what they do, uh, then we got to shut down because we don't have any product because we're not making enough products to sell, so nobody's buying and, you know, the downside. But what I was thinking about in that regard was the pandemic. Now, we're losing human beings left and right to lots of different causes. But the one thing that occurred to me was, and I don't know what the demographic is at this point, we lost over a million human beings just to COVID and COVID-related uh, situations. A million. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what the numbers are on some of the others like heart disease and diabetes and car accidents and smoking and drinking. And, but you start tallying that up and then you start asking yourself the question, how in the world would we ever maintain any kind of positive morale if we don't have enough people to work in the companies that and then you have the other side of it too and i hate to keep packing these questions so deeply but then you have the other side of it too that people from the pandemic are realizing hey guess what i don't have to go into the brick and mortar i can work remotely and if you don't let me do that then i'll go find a job that will and so now that company A ends up short-staffed short and, you know, that whole scenario. So let's talk about the numbers that are actually out there who can work. And we're not going to get into specific numbers, but that whole, that whole dynamic. Let's talk about the dynamic first. Well, um, going back to what you're saying, let's start with the, 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 the loss of life and, and in the United States. Our, our age... Our, our, our lifespan was averaging for the entire country about 76 years as a consequence of the of the pandemic and the opioid crisis mm -hmm. that has gone down a year. Wow. So, in fact, our, 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 our sort of so that it's gone down to 75. Now, in your economic class, uh, you are living longer, of course, you because that's the beauty of this. If you are of the right economic class, you are living uh, as long as you will live, meaning that you are probably 83 to 85 and, and the women are 87. The, the children that follow that in that same economic class are having shots at 90s and over 100. Mm -hmm. One in three children today, probably over 100. So the point being is there's going to be a longer lifespan. Now, that's one piece of this. Now, unpacking what you said earlier, which is very interesting, this notion of taking on more work. Yes, we are close to full employment. I think it's like 3.9%, which means that there are, there are people that are not, um, you know, that there's shortages. This is what's interesting about that is 
we are talking for the first time about stress in the workplace in a, in a I think in a, a robust manner. Mm. You see, when you when we started in the workplace, Richard, you didn't talk about being stressed out because that would have taken you out of the game. Yeah. Like, oh, is this too is this job too tough for you? You can't <laughs> handle this. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. You would have bucked up. And if you would have said, "Hey, I'm I'm having a tough time this week because I've been in here." Hey, we're all having a tough time. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So now I credit the young because the young are very concerned with their own mental health and well-being. And now we've surfaced the issue where it's not a sh where it's not shameful to talk about stress mm. because we have to deal with it. Why should I be in this situation where I, it's it's I can't talk about it and I have to experience it? Now, does that change the situation? No, but it does. It does allow us to talk. Now, to your third point, which is interesting about this remote work. Yes, it does give us space because now we've saved this time of commuting and I can call, I don't have to code switch. That means I can be who I am in my home. The problem, the problem with this, then there's several problems in my mind is one is uh, when the beauty of coming into the you come into the office. Every you come to the office, you do this, right? Mm -hmm. You could do this from your home if you set up a studio, but you'd be you at home and you'd be you in the office at the same place. Mm -hmm. You have the beauty of compartmentalizing. Yeah. See, when you compartmentalize, you let go of your wife for the day. You let go that there's no water at home. You just say, I can focus on this. You can't focus on that when you're at home. You have to keep switching. So that by itself stresses us to some degree. The other thing is we're social creatures and now there's nobody there. And yeah. so that's a problem. So when you take those things into account and the more detachable you are, people, the more detachable you become. Mm. And so that's the that's what I worry about is, hey, well, I don't see them. Do we need them? You see what I'm saying? Why don't we just put them on a contract and we'll let, we'll get them, we'll let them go if we need them or we'll keep them if we don't. And so I think we need to stay somehow in touch. I'm a fan of the hybrid world. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm a fan of. And at the same time, <clears throat> the dynamics of the workplace over the last, let's just say, 150 years mm. has changed. Oh, yeah. Over the last 150 years, it's changed maybe multiple times. Yes. Uh, I think the other thing, too, and this was a very interesting uh, point that was brought to mind, especially when it comes to uh, making shifts in technology. Mm. Obviously, the big thing now regarding, if I may bring up this subject, uh, just as a, a point of topic, climate change. Mm. And, of course, there are those who want us to shift to alternative forms of, of energy and, and so forth and so on. And the opposition to that says, no, 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 no. We can't do that, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it'll take too long. And the point is made by the proponents. That's not true. Look what we did in World War II. Do you see how we shifted our factories? And we did it in the space of, I don't know if it was like six months or a year, whatever it was, we did it. Of course. So why don't we take the same kind of, uh, let's call it philosophy of, not I don't, I don't like going to war because we got too many. The war on drugs, the war on this, no. the war on that. I, I, but if we take that same um, uh, uh, philosophy or, or mindset saying, you know what? We we can do this and we need to do it and we need to do it now. And I will say not for the purposes of altering climate change. OK, because I don't care about the science on either side. I don't. As a matter of fact, you can push the science aside. Mm -hmm. 
I say let's do it because we need to clean up our home. It's a mess and we need to clean it up. Even if the temperatures keep rising, doesn't matter. We still need to clean up our home and we can do it. And we have to take that same mindset as they did during uh, uh, World War II when we, we entered the war. Uh, the war. So uh, do you see that there's that possibility? Maybe, maybe it is with the, in the younger generation that they want certain things for their future. And in, the, in order for that to happen, the dynamics of, I don't know if you want to still call it the Industrial Revolution, I don't know if we're if we've shifted from that to the technological revolution. Yeah, I think we're in a new phase of humanity. Or coming. maybe it's the informational revolution. Mm -hmm. e either case, they want something more. Oh, absolutely. And they don't want to wait because they've seen what their elders have done over the last 50, 75 years. Nothing. Because we still have the same problems we had. I do remember, I don't know if you heard this or not, but I do remember that apparently our government came out in the 1960s. I was born in 1960. They came out in the 60s warning about oh, yes. where we are today. So yes, they, that's correct. Yeah, so they knew 60 years ago. Yes. So this is not a surprise to anybody in that no, respect. No, no, no. But again, it shows the younger generation that their elders have done absolutely nothing to clean up our home. As, and I'm going to keep using that phrase rather than to solve climate change because mm -hmm. I don't know that it's necessarily something that can be solved. It may be part of the natural earthly cycle of the planet. You know. Anyway, so uh, what about that desire? Because you have to think about it from the why I find you irritating. The, uh, uh, the elder, the younger generation is saying that of the older generation because things are still as they were when the older generation was the younger generation. Well, this, uh, th this question has more to do with not a generational perspective, but rather the stage of life. See, I, I, I make those distinctions okay. in the book. The generational perspective is how were you raised and how do you see the world as a consequence of how you're raised? So now this does inform a view. We come from a space of a, a time of, I will call, um, abundance. We are children of abundance, mm -hmm. the wealth effect. Yeah. And so in that sense, we see the world as more abundant. Now, if you come from a space, let's say the generation before, when you were raised during the Great Depression, you come from a space of scarcity. Those inform our view. The children of today are coming from a, a, a place of existential threat in their own mind, and that is climate change. Uh, in, in, in how they see it. So they, that is their generational perspective. The stage of life thing is, look, the young are talking about their futures. And, and as you get older, you're not talking about your future per se. You're talking about securing your present. You see, maintaining your present, mm. the status quo. Yeah. And so we're willing to forego the future if we can maintain the status quo, if we don't have to sacrifice on that. Now, the other point I will make is we are in a legacy phase, us who are older. And so we have a responsibility. Remember the, the old adage, and it should be, this is you should always leave it better than you found it. Mm -hmm. That's what the world is. Leave it better than you found it, because our legacy is to give to the young a, a future and hope. And if we are trammel that now, I don't think my age group, your age, our age group is intentional as humanity. I do think there are groups of people who are lobbying for what they want relative to this, and they have inordinate power to do so at the expense 
of people who are not organized to defend themselves against it. But that will come. That hopefully will change. That's my dream, as it were. Yeah. We are talking with Chris DeSantis, and uh, why I find you irritating is the title of his book, cpdesantis.com is the website, and I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story. We are bringing you new paradigms for a new world here on this program as we talk with Chris DeSantis here on the program. And, uh, you know, we're going to run out of time in this particular portion of the program, but the beautiful thing about it is, Chris, that we're going to be able to get together again very soon to continue this conversation. Um, you know, we're, we, we normally uh, uh, try to knock it all out in one shot, but because of our respective schedules, we're going to uh, have a continuation, which means folks who are watching the YouTube version of this program are going to watch us change clothes. And, uh, <laughs> well, they won't actually watch us change clothes. They'll watch our clothes change. I don't know if they want to see that, right. From one frame to the next. I'm not sure they do, but then again, maybe they do, and that's fine with me. Uh, but anyway, I find this whole conversation interesting. One of the things that I wanted to touch upon, and uh, I wanted to ask you about, mm -hmm. and we kind of have maybe have already touched on this, but it has to do with part one of your book, mm -hmm. uh, The How what and why of generational dynamics. And then, of course, your second part of the book, part two, has to do with changes at work. And, of course, we've already kind of talked about the changes at work. Um, but I'm wondering if, because I used to think about this, believe it or not, even in my teens, in the 70s, mm -hmm. when I would watch, for example, our legislative body in Washington, D.C., grapple against against one another but probably much more civil than today mm -hmm. and i thought you know what the only way we're ever going to make any headway is if some of these old guys die <laughs> at the time it was only old guys okay right. and if they would just die off new right. blood and new ideas and new concepts would come in well apparently my theory was wrong because it's the same, the it's the same philosophy, the same mindset today, but it's now entrenched in, in uh, more of a um, party preservation than it is in uh, serving we the people. But I have to wonder within the context of business, uh, you get new people coming into corporations. These are private companies. Okay, they aren't subject to the same rules or laws or regulations that the government is. Um, I'm wondering, do you find that in the workplace, mindsets are changing due to the new generation coming into that workplace and transforming the 150-year-old company that build, has been building widgets for mm -hmm. 150 years is now beginning to realize we can't we cannot expect to continue to increase our sales because widgets just aren't the thing anymore so we're going to need to shift and then we need to look at our employees differently we need to make them a part of the company they need to know that they are important in other words are we seeing the mindset of flipping that pyramid to the wide end up? 
Well, we, I think we are seeing, in my experience, we are seeing far more of an embrace for the humanity at work, meaning the, the diversity of work, inclusion at work, uh, being equitable with others at work. So I think that is embraced. I think companies are very clear on the fact that, look, we live in a pluralist society and I want to sell to as many of those people across the broadest spectrum as possible. I have to be that. I not only have to want to sell to them, I have to reflect that. So I think we're getting a commitment to that, to how we do. Now, uh, having said that, though, to your point, I also think that they, they want to think, how can we reach this broader market? And they're depending more on the young to sort of access that because they are a big part of the, the demographic. Mm -hmm. the, I think that the, the challenge here, though, is we are still in the economic bias of the people at the top of the pyramid. We are not sharing the wealth as much, even though um, uh, they are making progress with wages. But if you think of it this way, I think I read the statistics once. Management salaries have gone up somewhere over the past 20 years of 500 uh, percent. Employee labor uh, salaries over the last 20 years have gone up something like 80 percent, mm -hmm. meaning that the point is there's been a wide gap here of accumulating more at the top. That as the question of redistribution. That's where we should be thinking about. Uh, but as companies go, they're progressive with humanity and their people. They're not as progressive with their economics as they should be, in my view. Well, I also am wondering, too, and I've heard this from the younger generations in surveys and what have you and in some documentaries, that they are not as focused as their uh, previous generations on making boatloads of money of accumulating wealth, of accumulating things that what they are, and I don't know that it's the majority necessarily, but there are some who feel that the most important thing is community. The most important thing is relationships. The most important thing is connection. Are you seeing that? Well, I, I think what you're saying is that, yes, there, I see more of that, but they're not foregoing the idea of an income. And they're no, they're no, just no. starting out at a deficit. Yeah. They, yeah. they owe more money to start with. Their yeah. college was outrageous. So they're, and they can't enter into the, the, um, the housing market because that becomes expensive as well. So they're being shut out of a lot of things. Mm. So what, what alternative is there but to embrace the, 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 the experiences that you wish to have? And I do think that they are more on a, they're on a bit of a different journey. Yeah. Than, than we are. Yeah. I hope we move away from maximization of material goods to more of a, a balance between that which we need and that's and still enjoy life and, and not to the detriment of our environment. Why I find you irritating, navigating generational friction at work. Chris DeSantis, my guest, cpdesantis.com is the website and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it's really a pleasure to uh, continue our conversation here on Tell Me Your Story with uh, our very special guest who is sharing with us some very interesting insights, uh, Chris DeSantis and uh, cpdesantis.com is the website. We'll be linked to that website as well so that you folks can find out more about the work that he does. And we want to find out more about the work that you do. And how you became an independent, this is what it says here, an independent organizational behavioral practitioner, uh, speaker. That's not hard to say. You started talking when you were a very small child, uh, as well as a podcaster, author. You have over 35 years of experience working with clients in professional service firms and uh, services firms, both domestic as well as international. How different is it? working with folks here in the United States versus in other parts of the world? 
because the cultures mm. are different. The um, interviewed someone who uh, wrote a book about doing business in China, and uh, she says you could get yourself arrested or thrown out of the country if you don't do things the right way, like in China or in Japan, in the Asian world, mm. if you will, because they don't do business the same way that we in America do. Talk to us a little bit about the differences. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, there was a book written on this uh, some time back uh, that's been re-editioned, uh, The Organizational Cultures, I believe it was called. And it talks to this dimensions of difference. So each country has their own sort of, I think he outlines about six dimensions of difference and things, things like hierarchical versus egalitarian. So, for instance, if we're in Australia, we're much more egalitarian with each other, much more on a, a peer-to-peer level. But if you go to to your point, if you go to Asia or India um, or Southeast Asia in general, you will see more of a hierarchical thing. So they're much more of a chain of command in terms of who talks to who and who gets to go to what meetings and so forth. So you also, interestingly enough, in Asia, because I've been there a number of times, there's also there a, a more formality about them. And, and, and so and there's more subtleness there in terms of how they, they in, the exchanges. You have to really be on on your game, which is interesting because one of the uh, as an aside, a really small aside, uh, they, they like to look at your card for a while, uh, your, your business card. And you are to look at theirs for a while to examine sort of what's here and who is this person in front of me. So it's a different pacing. Europeans are different as well, but they differ by by nationality. So, I mean, I can go on and on about all of these things. Sure, like. sure. <laughs> Those are some basic ones. But then there's another area that uh, we want to talk about, too. We can t- touch mm-hmm. on this briefly. That's the whole aspect of uh, the cultural differences between generations. My father, yes. he grew up. Uh, worked at the same company for I don't even know how many decades it was that he worked there, 20, 30, mm-hmm. until they decided they want to move to Utah. And my dad says, no, I don't want to uproot my family. So he obviously took his took his leave and went back to school and he got his computer degree and so on and so forth. I, mm-hmm. um, I've worked uh, at two stations for 15 plus years. Uh, it was actually the second job I had in radio back in the 80s into the 90s, and then the job I'm working now with other jobs mm-hmm. in between. Uh, I was told in broadcast school, be prepared to move around the country. You're going to be jumping from job to job. And I'm going, nah, I don't want to do that. So, <laughs> uh, I thought longevity was a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet people who are younger than, me, younger than me, I'm 62, they have a whole different perspective on the workplace and and yes. and employment and vocation and life's purpose and so forth. Uh, that has to be quite a challenge because there is there is there something in there where the younger generation really do they want to learn from the older generation? Do they believe that the older generation has something to offer them in terms of wisdom and knowledge within in this case as we're talking within the business world. Oh, most certainly. But let me go backwards for a moment because I'll tie this to the global piece of the cultural piece. Okay. There, I, I don't want anyone to imagine that that um, 
generational differences as I speak to them, or as, as we understand them in this country, are globalized. Each generation is dependent on what the socioeconomics of the situation, mm -hmm. what events they experienced when they were young, uh, so what is normative in the culture. So you can't say, oh, boomers are global. Uh, so in that sense. Now, when you get to younger generations, to your point, I think what we're looking at is I, 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 I would term them a temporal culture. They are a culture based on the time. And so in that sense, they are unique to the time in which they've, they've experienced it. And then going to your point, we when we were young and, and your father was working, our experience was more likely that the company, I will call it the company man model existed. That meant you tried to get into a good firm and you tried to stay there for the duration of your career. Now we've moved much, we, we don't have faith in the covenant anymore of a company, meaning there's no guarantee you will have a job for life. At one point, there might have been, but now there is none. And so we've moved into a transactional model. And a transactional model is I'll do for you for now if you give me something in return. Going to your point about, well, are we, uh, so do they listen to us? Yes. But the transaction model is such that they listen to you in as much as, are you helping me? Are you developing me? And do I have opportunities here? Do you care about me? So they moved much more into the intimacy of the manager-subordinate relationship about my expectations of you. And then if you don't live up to those expectations, I'll look elsewhere. And so they're more likely to leave as a consequence of the experience they have with a particular manager than they're likely to say, okay, I'll just outweigh this manager and wait for a good one down the road. So you see, so we've moved much more to the, the, the here and now as opposed to the deferred reward model. The book is entitled Why I Find You Irritating. Yes. And it's interesting how, for the most part, throughout my career, I really haven't found people irritating, but there are those mm. exceptions to the rule. <laughs> right. As, as right. we all have experienced. And <clears throat> I'm wondering when, uh, when the manure hits the fan, um, <laughs> um, in my case, initially, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taken aback. I had an experience mm -hmm. recently where uh, I was being, I'll, I'll say it, I was being reprimanded because I wasn't doing things the way that, let's say, the executive producer wanted them done. And I could feel mm -hmm. my head and my ears getting warm, almost heating up. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out exactly why that was because I was really trying consciously to listen to him to acknowledge his concerns, although he was doing it in such a way as to throw his contributions to my life almost like leverage. I do this for you, and I do this for you, and I do this for you, and I, and then you go and do this. It's like, how dare you? You know, how rude. Right, right. And I'm just sitting there, and he says, are we clear? And I said, we're clear. I didn't necessarily agree with him, but we're clear. Right. I understand where you're coming from. I can appreciate that. And I thought about it over the night, overnight, and the next day I'm uh -huh. going, okay, but what were we producing? What did the final result look like and sound like? To me, that's what's more important than, well, what I saw on my monitor was not what you had on yours, and I told you to do this and this uh, three, four times, and you didn't do it during the program, and so on and so forth. And when I tell you, because I am this guy, 
You're supposed right. to do it. In other words, when I tell you to jump, you ask, you just say how high. Right. And I'm not going to sit there and go, look, pal, I've got over 40 years in this business. I know what I'm doing. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to play that card because that doesn't help. That only exacerbates the situation. You run into these kinds of dynamics all the time. Sure. Do you find the younger generation is is less posturing in that respect because they recognize the value of the people that are around them who are, in this case, let's just say they're elders? Mm-hmm. Well, look at it this way. I think these children go backwards again in their own time and their own experience. Mm-hmm. They are raised more in a dialogue model. The parenting model that is normative today is really biased towards dialogue with the kids. That means that they're engaged in all things around. For instance, when I was a young man or child, as it were, when I was a child back in the 60s, I had no input into the family vacation. There was nothing um, I had to say that was interesting to my parents as to where we would be going. Mm-hmm. I was just lucky to go anywhere. So I had no habit of dialogue. And when I'm at the dinner table, I did not bring forward uh, riveting stories because my role at the dinner table was just to eat the broccoli. So in that sense, my reality was to be much more, uh, I will say, reactive to or uh, acceptant of their direction. These children are raised much more in a dialogue capacity and all throughout their lives. In fact, the young have had millions, five or six million words sent to, said to them by the time they're six. And, and, and this dialogue habit that leaks into the workplace. So when they're confronted, as you were confronted, my guess would be they would challenge this, not in a way necessarily that would be insubordinate, although it would be interpreted as that, but as a way to say, I don't get what you're saying to me. Why is it doing it this way different than that way? Help me understand that. So when they come forward with their difference in terms of how they have a different view, it is not so much to say, I won't do what you're doing, uh, telling me to do, but rather I need to understand first why you're telling me to do. Why is this a better alternative? And maybe I have an idea of myself as to how to make it better for both of us. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The assumption of dialogue is inherent in the exchange. Yeah. You, know, you should have had a dialogue. By the way, you shouldn't have put up with that either yeah. because you do have expertise. You do have value to add. By the same and, token, and just, but I don't want to use that as leverage against to, again, I don't want to, I don't want to butt heads. Oh no. Saying, look, no, okay, you we, may be the executive not, producer, yeah. but I've been doing this for over right. 40 years. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, like I said, that kind of antagonistic uh, attitude does not help the matter. So oh, I just no, sat no, quietly no. and I listened and I've had this happen for me two other times in the past with uh, uh, two different general managers. One goes back to the 80s, and uh, the general manager comes out to the broadcast site, and he reams me a new one. I couldn't sleep for three days, okay? And I finally said, you need to come down here because I need to tell you, we need to talk. Uh, I had enough courage to have him come out there, and we sat there. And uh, the reason he reamed me a new one is because I had Mm -hmm. moved some furniture, and he told me, I don't want you moving any furniture unless you check with me first. Well, the reason mm. I had moved the piece of furniture was because I was <clears throat> vacuuming the rug. <laughs> and I hadn't moved it. He just made a surprise. <laughs> he just turned up. And so and right. I and I and when he jumped all over me like that and I thought he was going to hit me, I completely forgot what I had been doing. And then uh <laughs> in in 20 what was it? In 2004 or 5 the same general manager was in the conference room 
but he was not my boss at that time. I had a new mm-hmm. general manager, uh, an overall, uh, an umbrella company owned both stations now. So this guy was in, mm-hmm. the, in the room with me. And um, this new general manager was uh, doing the same thing, only this time it was because he claimed I caused a chief engineer who had much experience, the best mm-hmm. in the country, to quit. And I sat there in what they call the open body posture, you know, mm-hmm. and I just listened. And I had to do everything in my power to keep from laughing. Right. Because right. I'm looking at the old general manager from the previous experience and I'm thinking, you know what? I wasn't wrong then and I'm not wrong now, but I'm not going to tell them that. Right. And um, it all blew over. <laughs> the engineer came back. Oh. And, and, and we moved forward. So that's where, yes, conversation and dialogue are important, but there are times, aren't there, when it's just yes, best well, to just sit and be quiet and be still. Richard, you're, you're making, this is where we are teachers, we can be teachers to them because they come into the workplace rather naive. And you're saying, in effect, look, you've got to do a couple things. One is pick your battles. Mm-hmm. You don't go into you don't fight everything on everything. Uh, number two is be, have a have a game face, be neutral as is necessary to be neutral, and then decide after listening to them is this worthy of my effort in terms of the outcome that we will achieve or should I just let this pass? Yeah. So what they miss is they miss the politics of the organization because uh, they don't and again most organizations are like icebergs, right? You have policies, but the real organization is under. There's nothing in that policy that said. Uh, don't move the furniture, but you knew not to move the furniture. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So in that in that sense, you're, we are teachers of the politics and of, of what things you need to do to navigate inside an organization. We have value to them. Uh, and so in that sense, we can help them and we, they have to understand that. I think part of our responsibility to the young when they come into the work is to create an expectation between us. What will, how, who are we to each other? How will I help you? How do I expect you to help me? And then what are the rules of the game in so doing? Mm. It's clarifying. Yeah, it truly is. Uh, I love this quote that you have from uh, George, uh, from uh, Orwell, who basically says each generation imagines itself to be the most intelligent uh, and more (laughs) intelligent than the one uh, that uh, went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. Now, I will tell you that I consider my father to be a very wise person. Mm -hmm. I've referred to him as a wise guy, not from (laughs) the movie's perspective. He hates it when I say that. He does not like me to call him a wise person. But he he shared with me some very important uh, realities. And one of those was, Richard, find a job you love doing because you're going to be doing it for a long time. But then he said, he added to that, don't get stuck like I did. Mm. And I thought, well, how did you get stuck? Yeah, the company moved to Utah, but then you went back to college, junior college, and you got your computer programming degree during the period where they used fanfold paper and punch cards. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And you went on to to do other things before you retired. You know, but his right. point I, I took, uh, but this was probably um, after I had gotten into radio in my very first job. 
and absolutely loved it. And I have not wanted to do anything else since. Is is the the, the new generation probably mm-hmm. epitomizes the, the the younger generation probably epitomizes uh, the mindfulness uh, trend. And it's uh, to me, it's more than just a trend because mindfulness mm-hmm. means basically being here now. Yes. Do you teach well, that? Do com- you em- do you do you do you focus on that in your in your speaking well, and so forth? It, it, it's interesting. Let me let me back up because I like what you said about your father because uh, I, I I warn the I warn people about saying to a, a young person, "Do what you love." I, because I think that that's really a well-intended statement. It's mm-hmm. really well-intended, right. but it comes from a place of mastery. And so when you master something and you do it long enough, then of course you should be loving it. But there's a process of getting there. Yeah. And so when, when we say do what you love to a, a person who's just learning a new craft, it's it's a struggle. So I, I think you, they need encouragement along the way. It's not just do what you love, but I'm seeing progress you're making here. You see, because they go through the valley of despair. Yeah. The other point you made about your father, about I should have, the second point about his... Um, getting stuck? Getting stuck. You know what? He's not, wasn't stuck. You know, I think he was really saying to his, I was betrayed. Ah. I think he felt, he wasn't stuck. He was saying, I was, I, I was stuck in my, in my commitment to them in the sense that I, I had committed to them and it turns out they didn't commit to me. Mm. And so I think what he was saying, watch out for yourself. Cause I think that was one of those larger messages that, that parents were, you know, telling their kids that during that transition period to the Gen X crowd, like, Hey, there's no guarantees here. You better fend for yourself. Yeah. Do something you like and fend for yourself. You see, be employable. Yeah. So now your last point about mindfulness. I think this crowd is highly self-aware. Uh, this is why they get a borderline accused of being narcissistic. You know, there was a book that says, oh, they, the, these narcissists, they're not narcissistic. They're be- basically saying, okay, who am I? Uh, what do I have on offer here? What is out there relative to what I have on offer? And what can I do about that? So I think their self-awareness is useful. I think where they need learning, and this is where we help again, is they need to understand external self-awareness. How are they seen by others, not who they are to themselves? Because we are not who we are, not who we are to, uh, to the, in terms of who we are to, internally to who we are seen externally. Mm-hmm. So I think the help we would bring them is to say, hey, this is where you are in in the organization today this is the role you play this is what they expect of you now you may have all these other gifts and treats and all those traits and all of those wonderful things but they don't know that and and so you have to prove that versus just assume they understand it yeah. again we become their guide how about the dynamics in the workplace not just between the employee and the employer although mm-hmm. i will say that at every station i've ever worked with maybe one or two exceptions uh, even though there was the hierarchy, I had the program mm-hmm. director, the general manager, etc. We we didn't lord that over anybody, and it was never lorded over us. We were working as right. a team. We were working together. But then there right. are those workplaces where, and and I don't know if this is, uh, forgive me for being stereotypical, folks, but I don't know if this is true in in mostly female workplaces with the cattiness. Sometimes they don't always get along. Mm. Uh, you know, there's always this 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 little dig here and little dig there because this person doesn't fit in or that person doesn't look right or whatever. They don't wear the mm. right clothes or blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and I've always taken the position, even when I'm operations manager and I have quote unquote subordinates, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They're coworkers because I'm doing yes. the same yes. job they are. And I've been grateful for that, that I haven't been yes. separated. And that's been, no, my, I, I think, uh, an asset for me uh, that yes. I can say, look, we're coworkers. You know, I, yeah, okay, so I hold the title. You know, so what? You know, we have to work together here. Is, is, uh, it, that's got to be another area to try to rectify in terms of what arbitration, mediation, um, throwing the two kind of like two cats, throw those cats in a bag and let them fight it out. <laughs> and whoever comes out alive is the winner. Well, let me, let me, let me, because you, you, you ask very complex things, Richard, in a, in a very uh, accessible manner. But to, to, to your first point about you, you, let's talk you and your team. What's interesting about you and your team is uh, you are the talent. And so you are discreetly different than, let's say, the general manager, than, let's say, the engineer. So your team is, is really wonderful in the sense that they are complementary to each other from the get-go. So, and what's beautiful about you, Richard, is you, you, you realize you are not a diva. You realize that I am only as good as the people who make, make me look good. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, an element of humility, which I think we should all bring to the, the workplace. But recognizing, look, my contribution is such that I am dependent on these people to, 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 to achieve it. And so they are co-workers. And so I should give them over to what, you know, what they do. Now, let's translate that into a work environment. Here's the sad news. These people are put in competition with with each other because they're all evaluated on the same measures. So you might have these workers in an organization that get an evaluation of 10 or 8 traits that they have to all evaluate. And now they're in competition. So they're on a team. Mm -hmm. So now I have to look better than you. And so what we end up doing is we end up suboptimizing. So we end up putting people against each other. We say, oh, oh, this is an A player versus a B player. You know, and I, I I don't buy any of these things. My reality is such that, look, Everyone should be identified for their particular contributions. We should be more focused on highlighting their contributions on the team. And we should def- take push away from the competitive aspect and push more towards a cooperative aspect and then evaluate against their con- unique contribution, not their not their line, you know, the line of 10 items that we look at, because then we misplace our attention. Uh, and so I think that the, it's the it's the structural component, not necessarily a cattiness uh, in terms of how they execute, but but the cattiness is an outcome of being thrown into to your point, being thrown into the bag, mm. and then having to claw your way out. And that is not how we should be operating. We I, should have leaders like you, by the way. Well, I appreciate that. I find you irritating, Chris DeSantis. I don't find him irritating. That's the title of his book, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, CPDeSantis.com is the website. We'll be linked to as well as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. It's business as usual here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, along with uh, Chris DeSantis, author of I Find You Irritating. CPDeSantis.com is the website. We hope that you'll go there. We'll be linked to his website and hope that you will uh, uh, check out the book as well as his website and the things that he has to offer you. You obviously do speaking engagements all over the world, and uh, that's certainly opened up since the pandemic uh, I think it's come to an end. I'm not really sure. They haven't, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know if we've crossed the finish line yet, but uh, obviously things have loosened up considerably, which has made a huge difference in people's attitudes. But by the same token, people uh, in some instances have been so 
impacted by what has happened mm. over the last two and a half, almost three years, as of our conversation, um, that it, it almost seems like, and, and I know this is a fault of the media because they tend, they will sensationalize those sensational minority events rather than taking a look right. at the majority norm, uh, who are, um, well, I could use lots of, uh, uh, lots of uh, uh, metaphors. They're, they're uh, uh, coming off the rails, jumping off the cliff. I mean, they're doing mm. all kinds of crazy stuff that two and a half, three years ago they never would have done because uh, in two and a half, three years it was like they and many of uh, many others have just like been pushed to the brink. And companies in the same instance have been pushed to the brink uh, and in some instances to non-existence. They, they just mm. could not survive. Um, if, if one is to survive in business, if that's the area they want to go in, and we can talk mm -hmm. about entrepreneurialism too, not just, you know, corporate. Um, and I, I'm seeing that entrepreneurialism is just exploding again. 2008, yeah. 2009, that's what happened. Thousands and mm -hmm. thousands of people lost their jobs, and mm -hmm. yet somehow many of them landed on their feet. Um, I asked the question back then, I wonder how many of those people hated their jobs. You know, they were, no. Oh, is this a family job? I didn't really want to do this, but this is what the family does, so here I go. Whereas this time it wasn't that scenario. It was, I can't even go to the job I normally go to. But mm -hmm. we found alternatives Mm -hmm. So as we move into the future in preparation for, oh, how do I put this? The next, I'm going to put it this way, for the next challenge. Mm -hmm. Whether it be inflation, whether it be a recession, whether it be another pandemic, whether it be, you, you choose, ladies and gentlemen, you choose. Um, do we, and maybe the young people are a lesson for us older folks, Start focusing on the now, this moment, and not worry so much about down the road. I mean, I know we need to kind of plan, but at the same time, can you really? It's, it, you know the old saying, we make plans, God laughs. Right. Well, you're, you're, this is, again, another rich question. I think what what we experienced during the pandemic was uh, a white swan uh, and not a black swan. A black swan is something you can't predict. A white swan is something that could have could have happened, and this in fact did. Mm -hmm. What you're suggesting is there will be black swans in the future, things that we don't know how to predict. But I will say this: uh, in, in kudos to uh, to to the world, uh, we are resilient. We, 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 we got through this. We, we said, how do we reorganize ourselves? How do we survive this? How do we, how do we cure this? Which uh, we are internally grateful to the science uh, for, for providing a cure. So I think uh, humans uh, uh, in their nature are resilient. And, and I think this is a demonstration of that. Your other point is very interesting because I, I'm of the belief that we are becoming more and more entrepreneurial with each generation as a consequence of less and less faith in, in somebody else caring for us, meaning that the corporate world is great. If they, if I can get a job within that and I will you know, try to work within that, but I got to really be in the back of my mind is, am I taking care of myself here? So I think you're going to see more and more closet entrepreneurs who will then Given the opportunity, do something, uh, I will say, the duality. This is the side hustle. 
you will see more side hustles where they will be working in one place and working for themselves to where they get to the point of being able to just do it themselves and then forego that which they don't want to do. So um, I think we're seeing we're going to see more of that kind of experimentation than less of that in the future. Hmm. I'm going to share something with you. And this is as of our conversation. Uh, you mm -hmm. kind of alluded to this number a little while ago. And I'm looking at it as uh, as we speak, and it's giving me uh, a current tally of our population. And mm -hmm. The last time I looked at it, the the hundreds was in the 400 range. OK. And of course, this population clock that I'm looking at is um, is updated and we are currently at seven point. Are you ready? Nine, yeah. nine billion. And the 400 in the hundreds column is now mm -hmm. almost to nine, nine, nine. Matter of fact, it just rolled over. Uh, and now it's at 21, 22, 25, etc. We'll be they say by 2023, we'll be at 10 at uh, 8 billion. I think it'll be before mm -hmm. that at the rate this is going. Do you think that. Uh, this is something that occurred to me in reference to what we promote on this program, searching for those new ways of living and giving people choices and knowledge of those choices to help make their dreams come true. That it is possible to come up with new business models that we've never thought of before, uh, new economic models that either oh. we've rejected or we've never thought of before that would help bring a greater balance to the overall population to where we can all thrive, all close to 8 billion or 7.99 billion, where we could all, who choose to, because it is a choice, we can right. all thrive. What, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the future, your optimism, pessimism? Oh, no, I'm quite optimistic of the future. First of all, you sh there's, there is no alternative to hope. So we should all be optimistic about the future. And we have a responsibility to sort of, I, I'm of the old school. Uh, you should leave it better than you found it. And so in that, our obligation as citizens of the world, as it were, is to make sure that there, what, what, it, that this, what we, what I got access to, what I had the privilege of experiencing, I can pass on and then the next generation can leverage that and then in turn pass that on. Our mm -hmm. responsibility is to our, 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 our children, our children, 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 you know, and on ad infinitum. And I am, I am very hopeful because if you read the work of Steven Pinker, uh, he talks about this notion that, yes, uh, globally, we shouldn't be, you know, it, it was it was concluded that we would not uh, be able to achieve, uh, you know, the uh, this number of a population without vast starvation and dying off of all things. Yet we keep reinventing and we're able to achieve more and more and we're able to achieve more and more with less and less. We were going to run out of all of these minerals. Well, we're not. We're, we're finding all these things. So the point being is we make discoveries as we go. And, and I had read recently that. A number of jobs, probably 30 percent of the jobs of the future have not been invented yet. So to tell a kid that, OK, you know, we're, these kinds of paths you have to go and this is kind of work you can do. Uh, there's actually it's there's going to be an opportunity to create new work. I'll tell you a job that's going to come up out of nowhere. You're going to see things in a corporation of the the, the C the CWO chief wellness officer. 
And this is going to be a person that's going to be responsible not only for your, your physical health, but also your emotional health and, and your mental health and your spiritual health to some degree. The point being here is that's not a job that exists. There used to be a wellness department, but that mm -hmm. was really just something about, you know, that's a simple thing. This is more, this is globalized. So the, the, this notion that AI is going to come along and, and all of us are going to be uh, irrelevant or robotics are going to come along, all of us are going to be irrelevant. This is all, I don't buy that. I, be, I believe those are going to be adjuncts to uh, a, a, that we will leverage as people to further our abilities versus uh, replacements for us. You know, I've noticed that uh, as you've spoken, I've noticed that the uh, uh, TV and, and, and movies, uh, they talk about this, and mm -hmm. <laughs> AI is out to get you, and yes, exactly. we're in trouble, and we better do something, or, and I just, I, I sit here going, oh, come on, look how far we've come, but that's another question I want to ask you. I'm 62, my father mm -hmm. is 91, and I talked with him mm -hmm. the other day. And he sounds, eh, he sounds a little, a little weak, but that's just, he's 91. It's not anything to do right. with his health. He's, I think he's just getting tired. And Absolutely. I know. 91. I'm frustrated. Okay. Over the way things are today. All right. Here and yeah. now, here and now. Okay. Being mindful. <laughs> right. Uh, in, from the standpoint that uh, I, 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 I quote this, and I hear this from a good friend of mine all the time. I said, I quote uh, a Rodney King who said, why can't we just all get along? What right. in the world is going on? Why can't we all just get along? And um, so I take a look back, even before I was born, and I ask mm -hmm. this question to you, and, and please be honest with me on this. Are mm -hmm. we really... As human beings, are we really better off as a society, as a civilization, than we were 30, 40, 50, 70, 90 years ago? Most certainly. Most certainly. Uh, uh, there's, there's no question here. Uh, our, our, we are, first of all, we are living... A lot longer, even though in the United States uh, right now, we we went from 76 years as the average to 75 as a consequence of COVID and, and the opioid epidemic. Yeah. We are living a lot longer. The whole point of Social Security was at retirement age of 65 when it was created was that's when everyone died. Yeah. So in that sense, this th this is one. And poverty, poverty in this country has been reduced, even though we have pockets of poverty still. Yeah. But when we look at this, when we globalize this in terms of uh, the company uh, the country, we look at all of the, the measures are going up. So, so th this note, again, to your point, we live in a world that we see 500 channels and on 500 channels, we see a lot of bad things happening. Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the disposition we take is it's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, and and negative outweighs positive in terms of a, because we are that's a it's we're, we're we're genetically predisposed to threat. So I am I hopeful about the future? Absolutely, because we have solved problems that uh, that existed in terms of food, uh, getting food, you know, energy, all of. So yes, we are capable. We mm -hmm. are capable as a species to be better. Are we going through a bad time? Yes, we are. We're going through a transitory time right now. Mm. We are we are uh, United States, uh, in my opinion, is moving to an actual pluralist society. 
And when you have a pluralist society where nobody is in the majority, we got to play it better with each other as opposed to the people in the majority making the decisions. So I think when you go pluralist, you got to bring everybody to the table. Yeah. That's how that's how we got to play. I like that. I like that. What bolsters and supports your optimism? Well, um, I, again, I go to the point that I, feel I, I get to be around young people and I've not seen a young I, I've been around a lot of young people, not to any deep you know, you know, not not in a weird way, but I, I work with a lot of young people. Yeah. And so uh, I see I see joy in them. I see frustration in them. I see that they want to change the world. And that's what I love. The fact that they are not giving up. They're, they're saying this needs to change. And I, I want to be a part of that change. So my hope resides with them. My hope resides with them. Look at these young people in Iran who are going up against who are young women who are going up against uh, thugs. So when you have this kind of thing saying, OK, the young have hope. And so we should. And, and I see it around us here as well. So I am hopeful. I, I hope I'm not naive in my hope. <laughs> and I hope no one ever proves me wrong. Well, I'll <laughs> tell you, I am optimistic as well. And I do my yes. utmost. And it's hard when you work for a news talk and information station yes. uh, that is constantly talking about. I mean, you and I, we, our conversation at this very moment is, as we are talking, this is Election Day in the United States of America. This yes. is the midterms, as they call them. And I don't even want to think about it. I don't want to talk no. about it. Uh, I almost I'm don't care because... Uh, and, and maybe I have been bombarded too much by that negativity. Uh, yes. But I have not seen the common man uh, live a better life. But then again, I also listen to a lot of country music. And many mm. of the songs in country music, uh, there's, there's a line that goes along the lines of, I paraphrase, you know, we didn't have much, but we had it all. Because they're talking about family. They're talking about community. Is yes. that something that is starting to be more inculcated in business as well? What do they call it now? The business culture? Well, you're, you're, they're, they're interesting. Well, there's the business has cultures. But I think this idea of social responsibility, uh, I think uh, corporations are taking on the... the uh, the responsibility of 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 equity, of diversity, of inclusion. You see, they they don't want to risk their brand by being associated with something that is negative to the po potential of their of their buying public. Yeah. So I think they're leading the charge and saying, okay, how can we be more inclusive? I just don't want them to be politicized as 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 okay. I won't buy from you because you think that or this. But I do like them trying to to equalize, saying, look. Uh, everyone out here has worth and we would like to sell to all of you. And we demand that everyone should be shown inside our organization, uh, diversity, inclusion and equity. So they, they they're modeling what they hope society becomes, which I think is helpful if it's real. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Some people are using this as a check, you know, check the box. Mm -hmm. But I think there are a lot of companies out there that are genuine in their efforts to to be inclusive. Yeah. Um, I realize this probably might rub some, rub some folks the wrong way, but let me ask you about, uh, uh, say, a new business model uh, that, mm -hmm. on the one hand, goes into business to build the best widget, using that as the uh, generic example, that money mm -hmm. can buy, okay, mm -hmm. with the 
long-term goal of going out of business for the reason Mm. that there's going to be someone else who is going to innovate our widget without violating our patents. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go out of business and they'll take over. In other words, everything is temporal. Everything is temporal. And it's great when you hear certain companies and corporations that have been around for 100, 125 years. How did they start? By immigrants who came to this country, not all, but many, who came to this country, started a mom-and-pop little operation on a street corner, you know, in 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 a brick and mortar. And it grew, and people liked it, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and over 125 years... Now it's international and people love it. Yes. And that's great. And it's never too big to fail. But that's the whole point is I think they're using the wrong word. It's not about it's too big to fail. It's and nothing lasts forever. It's right. temporal. It's time has come. Yeah. And that's sh- yeah, and we need to embrace that, don't we? Need to say, you know what? And that's okay. Well, I, you know, it's so interesting that you're saying that because I, I, I think some jobs should be self-liquidating in yeah. the sense once you accomplish it, you, you're done. To your point, I would like a politician to go in and say, look, I'm, I'm here for eight years or whatever I'm here for. I'm here for this mm-hmm. period of time. And the only thing I'm going to do is accomplish this on my agenda. There is no future beyond that for me in this role. So, but what happens is when you start, and I am not suggesting that we have term limits. No. I am suggesting that we are more Cincinnatus in our belief, meaning that the the farmer who comes forward and says, I am doing this as because uh, it serves Rome. And then when I'm done serving this, I will go back to my farm. Mm-hmm. And the point here is that's what I think we should see more of. It's the, it's the moment of this is my contribution. I am done. And now I will, I will let another take the stage. I kind of, I like, I like the idea of that. But again, the challenge with us being humans is we all, once we are in the spotlight, it's hard to step away from it. And we like our relevance. And so, and this is where if I was successful here, I could be successful there. And then we perpetuate to your point to where it devolves as opposed to progresses. Yeah. And that that should be okay because something else. And I remember uh, in a conversation I had some time ago, we were talking about, uh, Uh, doing away with some of these uh, outdated and outmoded institutions that we have in this country in in particular. Uh, And they said, no, 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 no. You do not want to destroy the current institutions and then build new ones. You want to build the new institutions that make the old ones obsolete. And when you think about our progression over the last 200 years, not so much as a country politically, but as a country um, uh, manufacturing and so forth, or or business-oriented. I mean, we got around on horses for the early mm-hmm. part and carriage, horse and carriage and that type of thing, right? And mm-hmm. then in the late, what was it, late 1800s came along the automobile. Right. I'm sure the horse and buggy people were not too happy about that. No. But did no. they go to did they go to the government and say, you know what, we need to stop this because this is going to put us out of business? Well, the same thing's going to happen uh, with the com- the internal combustion engine, probably yes. even with the electric car. Something else is going to come along to innovate that. And again and again. I mean, heck, I'm waiting for the little little transporter that I can put right here from Star Trek. And OK, send me to Ireland. Boom. I don't even need a vehicle. I have this. Th- Who knows? Oh, I'd love that. Right. 
No, no, I agree. I agree. The future is unknown. That, I mean, that's yeah. it. Wasn't that uh, what was it? Rumsfeld? Uh, the un, they're unknown unknowns. Yeah, unknown unknowns. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think that's that's what the future holds for us. Um, again, I, I I think people try to extrapolate against the past, but I think it's to predict the future is hard. Yeah. I've never been a fan of trying to predict too far into the future. Yeah. Was it Kennedy who said that we look into the future and and uh, or no? We do things that are hard and we don't ask why. We ask, why not? I say we look yeah. into the void, if you want to call it the future. And I ask mm -hmm. the same question. Don't ask why. Why don't you just ask, why not? Who knows? Right, exactly. And that's what I looked into at twenty in March of 2020 when they called the, the pandemic and said, everybody stay home. I'm going, okay, we're doing something different. Einstein's theory of insanity uh, taking into play here. We're doing something different. That means we're going to have a different result. We may not like the other end, but it's going to be different regardless. But then there was yes. that optimism of what incredible opportunities that we don't even know exist yet. And did you see the people who came to bat for the rest of the population in their respective communities? Yes. Was there really a shortage of food? I didn't see a shortage of food. The restaurants were going crazy, making sure that, number one, the food they had in their in their stores, in their refrigerators and pantries and everything, didn't go to waste. And they were making food for people who would come and they'd pick it up and they'd go home or it would be delivered. And, and now we have these delivery yeah. services and people love it. And it's an opportunity for people to make money, to, to help the economy, and so on and so forth. So that, that to me, it was... It, <laughs> it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Uh, and, no, but and, it was, it, but it's to your point, just to your point, Richard, yeah. is that we, we uh, under the gun uh, are very cooperative, very collaborative. And yet it's this, 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 we are, it, it appears that we don't get along as we do, but yeah. we do. We yeah. do. And this is why I'm a big fan. This is why I'm a big fan of the young. If they are, in my view, uh, true to this dialogue model, and then when they finally come to power, they'll talk about it across difference to try to find out how do we resolve this, as opposed to just taking my way or the highway, yeah. which is, I think, what we're playing with now, and that creates a partisan divide. It does indeed. And it's it's partisan, but sometimes it's not even political. Sometimes it's economic. No. Sometimes it's religious. Yes. Sometimes it's at an educational level. I have yes. four sisters. They all went to university. My brother went to DeVry and then went to work for Disney. Uh, he's younger than I am, and he's already retired. And that's great. Mm. I'm happy for him that it's he's great. able to do that. Um, my sisters all went to university. I went to a broadcast school for a six months. Then I went to three, three semesters. Well, prior to that, I went to three semesters of a junior college. Um, and and I, that's how I found the job that I started out in this business. Uh, so we all have our own paths. Not everybody yes. is, is uh, destined for uh, four years of university. It's uh, exactly right. And, no, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. And that's something that I think we might want to throw in there, too, that yeah, you want to start a business, but that doesn't mean you have to major in business at uh, Harvard or Yale or ASU or or UCSB. There are other ways of learning. You could you could be a, an intern or find a mentor, that kind of thing. Uh, do you encourage well, that aspect of it too? Not just in terms of saving money on education, 
but on on tapping into that individual's way of learning, their best way of learning. Yes, what's so interesting you're saying this because I'm a big believer and we've got to move from this, I will call it this accumulative model of materialism, meaning that, look, the more, the more, the more that I have, the better I must be. And, and my point would be, I think the young are saying, well, it's not enough to just get on this treadmill of ever, you know, doing more and more and more and more for more and more and more. It's about what can I do that gives back that brings me joy. Yeah. Uh, this goes back, harkens back to the when we were children, Richard, we were children of what's called the Great Compression. And in the and the Great Compression was really the, the uh, that's why the middle, it was the compressed. We compressed the rich and the, and the poor into the middle. And so you had white collar, blue collar, everyone, most of the population in the United States at that time was in the middle. They were rich, but not fantastically rich. Right. And they were poor and not ridiculously. But now we have this middle. What we've done is we're, we're moving away from the middle again, and we're splitting it further to where there's an upper middle and beyond. And then there's it's sinking below. We have to move back to the middle. And whatever it takes to do that, that's how we should be designed. I know people won't want to hear this, but it has a lot to do with making sure everyone has a really decent wage. Uh, the taxes reflect sort of what they need to do to make sure that there's more compression in the middle and that we provide opportunities for those who can't who can't get them themselves to where they can ascend to the middle. Yeah, that's where our future is. It's in the middle. I hate to say it, but everyone thinks of themselves as the next, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Elon Musk. Yeah, and this is a mistake. This is a mistake. We don't want Elon Musk's. We want we want we want we want your brothers. We want your sisters. We want all of them. All of them. That's what we want. Variety in the middle. Yeah. You know, uh, when it comes to politics, I would rather and let's just say for president, and it doesn't matter when I would rather have a blue collar worker as president because he's got grease under his fingernails. And he's got dirt on his boots. And he's got uh, John Deere green tractor parked in his garage and so forth and so on. He knows what the general population goes through yes. day in and day out. He understands, whereas these people, the most, the further majority of uh, people um, that run and win, they haven't touched a rake, a shovel. Uh, they haven't lifted the hood on the car. They haven't done any of that. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they've never washed a dish in their lives. Um, well, and I know that right. in the founding fathers, in the early, maybe the first 40, 50 years of this country, they were. They were farmers and laborers and leather smiths and and uh, uh, blacksmiths and so on and so on. But as time went on, it became, oh, this is going to, I'm going to be a professional politician. It's like, but that's not what they intended. Reminds me right. of um, uh, the author of a book having to do with uh, a new revolution. The subtitle was uh, Returning to a More Reasonable Form of Government. So my first question to him was, so when was the last time we had a more reasonable form of government? He says, well, it was about uh, three minutes after the ink was dry on the Constitution. Because at that point, everybody's ox was going to get gored as they began to pass laws and do this and that and the other. Uh, but I think uh, what you said earlier is just is absolutely true. We need to start to listen to each other's stories. Uh, 
where where each of us comes from and not be concerned with what I believe or what you believe, what uh, what position I hold on this issue or what you hold on this issue. You can still hold those positions. You know what? We don't have to talk about them. And I'm not saying that it's taboo. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, it makes for a much more cohesive relationship if we just kind of keep some of that stuff. I mean, I'm sure you probably voted today as I, but I'm yes. not going to, neither am, am I going to ask you, nor do I expect you to tell me who you voted for and why or what propositions you voted for in your respective state or county, because it's none of my business. And I heard one of the greatest quotes not long ago. It goes, uh, Chris, what other people think of you is none of your business. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I like that. Well, I, I'm hopeful as you are, because I, I do think that the government has become a millionaire's club, and, and that's a problem. I also think to change that, we have to change how we elect, and then how, how, do, you, you know, how do you fund these, these, these vitriolic ads that you saw right up until the election day? That is horrible. Yeah. And so we, we have to level the playing field in terms of how do we get into office, and, 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 but we haven't done that. I, I my, my my theory is it'll get worse before it gets better, mm -hmm. but but it will get better. Well, Barbara the Marks pendulum Hub swings. Well, Barbara Marks Hubbard said it best. She said, and this was in two thousand seven when I interviewed her. Uh, she has since passed, but she was saying that uh, what we're going through, even back then, she says it's like the birth pangs, mm. and it's going to be painful for the mother uh, for a while. And then eventually the baby is born and then you've got this new sparkling spanking new little kid that you now get to watch grow and you get to help mold. And that day is coming. I, I feel that that day is coming. And I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. This has been fascinating for those watching on YouTube. Uh, this was uh, this was actually a two parter in that uh, the first part we recorded earlier and when I, by that, I mean weeks ago. And we continued with this segment here on Tell Me Your Story. And this has just been, uh, um, just, it's just been great. And I thank you so much for your time. Oh, my gosh, Richard, you've been great. I really like the way you think and the way you sort of put it all out there. That's so nice. Thank you for having me as well. You are very welcome. I do have three final questions that I ask all of oh, my no. guests. Uh, here we are in our 15th year of Tell Me Your Story. And uh, mm -hmm. we sort of um, upped the questions a little bit, these three. And uh, I, yeah, you may have answered them earlier in the program, but I like to ask them directly. The first sure. of those three questions is, who is Chris DeSantis? <laughs> you mean who is in the role that I, that I, that I express whatever, in what I'm doing? Whatever comes uh, to mind, my friend. Yeah. Well, where I'm most comfortable talking about that is in the role that I play, because uh, the role that I play is 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 I'm trying to help people overcome obstacles to getting along and performing in the work environment. So everything I do is in service of of, of doing that, but I do it with a, hopefully a light touch in the sense that I'm not trying to impose, but rather facilitate the the, the transition. <laughs> What is your life's purpose? Oh, that's, that's such a large question, Richard. At the end of the show, no less. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. My life's purpose is to, um, 
my life's purpose is to be on a, I'm a, I'm a learner. I'm a life learner. This is who I am. I like learning new things. And then I like leveraging what I know and sharing with others and getting a return on that. And the return can be psychic in terms of the satisfaction I derive from helping, or it can be monetary in terms of, hey, somebody has a need here that I've met and they're willing to pay me. Mm. So I, I, I think my purpose aligns with expanding and sharing the base of knowledge out there. Last question. Mm-hmm. I hope you get the movie reference. What was your best day? What was the, what movie is that? City Slickers. Oh, okay. What was what was my best day? Wow, that's hard because there were so many good days, and there are good days to come. Mm-hmm. What was my best day? First thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I. I mean, I'm going to have to go with recent history. Uh, One of my best days was I had never been there in my whole life was coming to Venice and uh, Venice, Italy. And I had read about it for 60 years of my life. And one. So I, I I landed at the airport and then I decided to take one of those wooden boats. You know, those speed boats that you see in every uh, James Bond. Oh, yeah. Uh, I almost want to say Chris Craft, but that may not be correct. But I know yeah, what you're referring. I know what you're referring. Beautiful Riviera, Riviera, one of those beautiful boats, right? Oh yeah. I took one. I, I they had them at the airport. It was a very expensive thing for me to do, but I took, I took, I, I basically took one alone, and I took that into Venice on a sunny, warm day. It was the most beautiful day ever. It was a 30-minute boat ride with me alone in the back of a boat, this wooden, beautiful craft. And I walk, and I we had to go all through Venice into the canals, down the canals, where I was dropped off right in front of where I was staying. It was the most beautiful thirty minutes I ever experienced. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh yeah, it was great. It was great. I find you irritating is the book. Chris DeSantis is the author. The website cpdesantis.com will be linked. So you be linked, folks. Again, Chris, thank you so much. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am listening.